We are going to be in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 13 through the end. We are going to finish Hebrews tonight. Yeah. Going to keep you here till 9 o'clock, but we are going to know. We will have it finished tonight. Um, really kind of looking forward to it. Um, not finishing it, but I, I think there's a lot of good stuff here tonight. And uh, so anybody listening, if you did not get to hear all of this, feel free to go to Patreon and, and you can see all of them there plus a lot of other stuff. Anyway, we're beginning in verse 13 here tonight, and this is what it says. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Now, we kind of touched on this last week where we were seeing in previous verses that he was talking not about what you can eat and not eat when he talked about food, but he was talking about the Day of Atonement and how the sacrifice was taken outside the city, outside the camp. Tonight you're going to see another uh, one of many examples that we see that if you don't understand the Old Testament and the Torah, I don't know how you can understand what's being said here in Hebrews. Because he is referring to the Old Testament. And any Jew would have understood what he was saying here. But I would say 99% of a Christian community today in America would not have a clue what this means. Why it's there. What it, what's the importance of it. Now before we answer that exactly, um, just note that therefore let us go forth to him. He's referring to Jesus, Yeshua. Okay? That's who he's referring to, but... It's making a connection to Moses, which you're going to see. Now, before we get into that, I'm going to kind of touch on verse 14. For we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. These are words that would have gotten you stoned. Because he's referring to Jerusalem. There's no continuing city. Jerusalem was the city of cities. I mean, it, Jeremiah, when he talked about you know, the city was going to fall by the Babylonians... They arrested him. They wanted to stone him. They wanted to put him to death. So this is a pretty big thing for them to be saying, we have no continuing city. It's not a, a, a small issue here. Um, if you remember back in chapter 11, the great faith chapter, verse 9 here, it said, By faith he dwelt in the land of promises in the foreign country, speaking of Abraham dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So Abraham was saying the same thing that the author of Hebrews is saying here. Abraham was, he realized, he had this promise. God said, I'm going to take you into this land. Even Abraham realized he, he wasn't talking about the physical land of Israel. And way back when in Hebrews, we were talking as well about the fact that everybody's looking for this new temple on earth. It's no different that today many of the Christian church is looking for a physical temple to be built. 
Now, I'm not saying one won't be built in the end times. What I'm saying is that is not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is we are the third temple. Remember when we talked about that? It's the same kind of thing here. He's trying to get your eyes off of this world and onto what you're really here for. The, the world that has foundations, because this one does not. Um, Paul, back in Galatians 4, if you recall, he was talking about Hagar and Ishmael as well as Sarah and Isaac in comparing them to the heavenly Jerusalem and the earthly Jerusalem. Same thing. So this is not a unique thing. This has been seen many, many, many times before in Scripture that he's saying we are not to be having our eyes fixed on this world. I think that I'd probably be pretty safe in saying most of us have a problem with that, like doing that. That I so easily can get caught up in what's going on in my, my calendar, uh, the wish list, whatever the case might be, and I keep saying we're not to be building a kingdom here. We should have our eyes fixed on what is to come. And you're going to see some examples of that in the New Testament that I think put us to shame. And I think especially in America, we have this attitude of getting comfortable here. And if we're comfortable, maybe we need to make ourselves a little more uncomfortable. Because that means we are loving this world too much. Um, <clears throat> this is not home, basically. And so, it's easy for us to remember in times of trial, this is not home and we look for heaven. But what about when things are going really well and, you know, we think we've got the world by the tail? This go forth to him outside the camp. We're going to kind of focus on that a little bit more here. And to understand this, we need to go to Exodus because that's going to tell you what was going on and why he's saying this. In Exodus 33, verse 7, it says, Moses took his tent. Now that word for tent right there is ochel meod. Ochel is tent. Moed is... Um, it's like an appointed uh, place of meeting. And so in some translations, it will be called the tent of meeting because of that. But if you recall when I was talking, if, if you've been to a Passover Seder meal that I've led, these are the moed of God, the appointed feasts of God. So the festivals are called the moed, moedim in plural. They're appointed times. This is an appointed place. So, it says, Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting, or tent of meeting. Now, it's called the tabernacle of meeting because I want you to understand that in other places, the tabernacle, the mishkan, is literally called ochel moed in places. So, the very exact same word for the tabernacle is applied to Moses' tent outside of this camp. That is not insignificant at all. 
And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, that is Moses' tent, which was outside the camp. If you recall, God promised that there would be a prophet like Moses that would come. Um, he would raise up a prophet like him, and to him you shall hear, or him you shall hear, it says, something like that. But it was prophesied that the Messiah would be raised up, one like Moses, of whom you will listen to, of whom you will hear. And understanding that, which is a prophecy every Jew understood, they were waiting for one like Moses to come. Now we have here in the book of Hebrews saying, let's go to him outside of the camp. Every Jew would have thought, oh, well, we remember we were supposed to go outside of the camp to Moses. There was supposed to be one like Moses. This Yeshua is the one like Moses. Those are the dots that should be connected in any Jewish mind right now. It is true if you were unclean, you went out to the camp. Now, there may be some significance there because of why they go out to him, which is what we're going to see here in the Targum, which again, all the Targum is, is the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament. Okay, so scripture. And the Targum says this for Exodus 33, 7, the exact same verse. But the tabernacle he took away from thence and spread it without the camp and removed it from the camp of the people to the distance of 2,000 cubits. And it was called the tabernacle of the house of instruction. So the tabernacle he's talking about here is not the tabernacle. He's talking about Moses' tent, the Ochel Moed. And so it was the distance of 2,000 cubits. And the reason that that is interesting is this is how far they record you were supposed to stay away from the Ark of the Covenant. It was a holy distancing. Rather than social distancing, it was the holy distancing. All right? 2,000 cubits. So it's not an accident, I don't think, that this is here, that the presence of God... The Ark of the Covenant, you had to be 2,000 cubits away from. And now Moses, the Ochel Moed, is 2,000 cubits away from the camp. So, kind of interesting. It's also interesting that it's called the House of Instruction, or literally the House of Torah. So, what it is, is a place that they would go out to get instruction and hear the word from Moses. Look what it says here as it continues. It was that when anyone turned by repentance with a true heart before the Lord, he went forth to the tabernacle of the house of instruction that was without the camp to confess and pray for the pardon of his sins and praying he was forgiven. So like what you were bringing up, Debbie, about going outside of the camp, if you were unclean, you went outside the camp. Here, it's, if you had sin and you wanted to confess, as the regular version said, if they went to seek the Lord, they were, sought him out, that's what we do. When we have a desire to repent, it's because we're seeking God. That's what causes us to repent. Knowledge of who God is. And when they did that, then they went out and they would confess their sins to Moses, and then he would pronounce forgiveness. So, 
we see this in the New Testament too, that if you know, we are faithful and just and confess our sins, he, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive you all your iniquities. That same kind of thing, confession. Now, when we hear the word confession today, we at least I do anyway, automatically think of the Catholic Church because that's what the Catholic Church you know, would do. They had little confession booths and all of that. That's not such a bad thing. Maybe it's not done exactly, but confession is good. The Bible talks about it, and I think that's something that in our regular Protestant churches, we've kind of let slide. It wasn't that Moses was able to take away their sins, but he was basically as a mouthpiece of God saying God has forgiven you. The whole point is, is it's pointing Moses to one like Moses, which would be Jesus Yeshua. And so now, who do we confess our sins to? The one like Moses, Jesus. And then he forgives us our sins. So it's that whole picture parallel between Moses and Yeshua. So, like I said, this would have resounded loudly to any Jew when they were hearing this in the book of Hebrews. There was no question they understood what was being talked about. Let us therefore go outside the camp to him. They knew, oh, to the one like Moses, to the one that has come, Yeshua. Acts chapter 4, verse 34, going back to this, we do not have a city that's physical, really. We see that after Jesus had ascended, the Holy Spirit has been given, and it says, Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each other, to each, as anyone had need. I think we've talked about this before, but it's fitting again here in the fact that when you were an Israelite and you got to your promised land, that was the prize of all prizes. You didn't give that up. There was even rules in the Jubilee that if you sold the land at the end of the Jubilee, it was to be given back to you. Unless it was within a walled city, then you had one year to redeem it back. And if it wasn't redeemed in that one year, then it was gone forever. Here we have people within the city of Jerusalem, a walled city, who are selling their things with no hope of getting it back. Why? And I think the answer is because this Jewish church understood this is not home. And they were willing to sell their things because... They weren't building a kingdom here anymore. They didn't care. And that's very interesting to me. It's huge. We shouldn't hang on to the things that we have here too tightly either. We've talked about this in the sense of government. If the government wants my house, why should I fight for it? Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be involved and vote and do all of those things to try and keep those things from happening. But when your hands are tied and you have no other choice, do you grab on to it? You know, I was telling somebody here recently, uh, the Benham brothers, how they talked about when God gives us gifts that if we hang on to it too tightly, he's going to have to pry your hands open to take it. And that whatever God gives us as gifts, 
whether it be our own children or material possessions, a spouse, we should not hang on to that too tightly because they belong to God. Even our own life, we should not grab onto too tightly because when God wants to take it back, it's going to hurt to pry the hand open. And we see that these guys did not have, they had their gifts with an open hand. Lord, you gave it to me, you can take it back whenever you want it. Use it for whatever purpose you have. So selling a house here was more than just, oh, you know, we're going to move. This was a testimony of the faith that they had and the promise that this was not home. Just what Hebrews is telling us here, okay, that we do not have a continuing city. Verse 15 continues, Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Keep in mind the context. He just told us, let us go outside to him. The context of that is to do what? Confess your sins, be forgiven, and then what's the result? Therefore, by him... By Yeshua, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks in his name. So the very first thing they do when they go outside of the camp and receive forgiveness is offer a sacrifice to God. Not one of animals, not one of blood, but of praise. In Leviticus 7, it talks about these offerings, these sacrifices. Most people in the church, when they think of sacrifices, we're thinking of bloody animals. But there are a couple of other sacrifices that are talked about. The, uh, the Hasholomim, which is the peace offerings, Shalom. Okay, Hasholomim, plural. And then there's the thank offerings, todah, thank you. You go to Israel today, you can say todah, thank you. The todah offerings, thank offerings. Both of these in Leviticus 7 are described, and that's exactly what he is talking about here. And so as a result, what we're seeing is when we go outside to him, outside of the camp, we receive forgiveness of sins, the result should be, Thank you. And we ought to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship, it says in Romans. Which means, if we are going out to him, receiving forgiveness, and there's no response of sacrifice, I'm going to suggest to you, you haven't gone out to him. Or if you did, it was with the wrong heart. And I don't think that the forgiveness was pronounced. A tree is judged by its fruit. You will know them by their fruit. All of these kind of things. If you love me, you will do what I say. If we truly believe, not just have a head knowledge of what Christ has done for us, but a heart knowledge of what Christ has done for us, there will be a response, a sacrifice of praise, a thank offering. So it's kind of interesting to me, the connection here in Hebrews to what's going on there, because that's what they would do. They would offer uh, praise to God. 
This is why it's so important for us, I think, to worship, uh, you know, God. We see Jehoshaphat. Remember Jehoshaphat? When he went out, he sent the armies out ahead of him. We're going to talk about that coming up in more detail, but the bottom line is it was the sacrifice of praise going out. Hmm. So, in Leviticus 22, verse 29, just kind of springing off of this a little bit more, when you offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, offer it of your own free will. That's an important aspect here. When we read in Zechariah 14, maybe, I don't remember, somewhere in there, we see in the end times that there are sacrifices being made. And people always say, because this is in Ezekiel too, uh, chapters 40 through 48, we see these sacrifices, and that's always been confusing because it's like Jesus is the final sacrifice. How then can there be in this new temple, millennial reign type thing of Zechariah or Ezekiel 40 through 44, how can there be sacrifices? Well, that's because even after forgiveness has been given, there are still sacrifices of praise and thanks, peace that are in remembrance of what he has done. And some of these are burnt offerings. Not all burnt offerings were for forgiveness. They were for, some of them were for thank offerings. Okay? So I don't believe that there will be animal sacrifices because... Those were the blood sacrifices that Jesus finished. So, when the tabernacle was being built, where did they get their stuff from? I mean, we're talking, I don't remember, I've heard, but I forget the number, but how many millions of dollars would have been in that tabernacle? Where did they get that from? They're out in the wilderness. Exactly. When they left Egypt, God said, go and ask your neighbors for their gold, their silver, their clothing. They plundered the Egyptians when they left. So then they get out into the wilderness and God says, oh, you know all those things that I gave you? I'd like some of it back. And they willingly, from their heart, as a response of being delivered from God, nobody said, oh, really, God, this is mine. They willingly gave it back to him. It was kind of a supernatural thing that they ever attained that. There is, but I'm going to say this. I don't think it's much different than it is today. I think that we have this false sense that what we have today is because of the hard work that I've put into it and all of this. But I would say, and I know that people could argue it's not the same, but I'm going to say that Everything that I own, it's because God has given it to me as well. That it is no less miraculous, it's just in a different way. The fact that I can work, the fact that I have the job, the, the fact that people call me to come and speak, the fact that people place it, uh, God places it on their heart to, to donate to the ministry, to do whatever, that is all of God, not of me. And I've talked about this guy before, but our ministry... I really tried to model after George Mueller. And that's how I kind of see it as miraculous. 
George Mueller, if he needed something, he didn't go and say, hey, everybody, uh, we're really short this month. We need money, and uh, the offering box is in the corner. He got down on his knees, and he prayed. And guess what happened? The money came in, always. Maybe it was a knock on the door. Maybe it was an envelope slipped under the door, uh, under the door whatever the case was. Everything came in by prayer and prayer only. That is miraculous. We are out here in this property because of prayer. We're in this building because of prayer right now. And it is no less miraculous in my mind. I, I don't know if maybe all of you haven't heard this. I'm going to just take a little rabbit trail here to give you the testimony to brag on God a little bit here. When I was a teacher, I wanted to go full-time creation ministry for years and years and years. I loved it. I loved doing it. I saw fruit coming from it. I liked being a teacher, too. It, that was fine. Um, there was fruit in that. You, you see the fruit later. It wasn't that immediate that you got to see. <laughs> but, yeah, um, but it was fun. A few frustrating days when you couldn't keep you know, people out of your uh, file cabinet stealing your food and pop. But... Um, <laughs> We won't call names, Jordan. <laughs> um, but I began praying, Lord, first show me that my, my calling here is done. Second, you have to get my wife on board because I couldn't even talk to her about that. I know it's hard to believe that she just wouldn't really listen to that reason. <laughs> no. She, I literally, if I would bring up going full-time creation ministry, it was literally, don't even talk about it. No, we're not even talking about it. Because, rightly so, she was scared to death how I could provide for her. To get that. Well, all of a sudden, after being 10 years, you know, principal, teaching, I had never once had a problem working with a pastor. Okay? Always, all of a sudden, there were these just irrational, illogical problems coming up. I mean, really silly things. And it was getting to be a frustration. And I remember only praying for that person. I would pray. I said, Lord, he is not the enemy. He is a brother in Christ. I know he is. He's not the enemy. Just open his eyes. Do whatever. Don't let, don't let him be destroyed. All of these things I would pray, because he is not the enemy. Just like Ephesians says, we do not battle with flesh and blood. Well, bottom line is God was using that to show me that my calling there was done. And it was causing my wife to be frustrated. When people don't like me, it bothers her more than it does me. That's just kind of how it usually is. Well, I also, well, I came home one day and she said, Brian, I think we ought to, you ought to go full-time creation ministry. This was after about three months of really praying about this. And, I mean, my mind was blown. I thought, wow. But then I was scared because it's like, well, that's awesome. God answered that prayer, but how? I had no idea how this was going to happen. And I began to pray, Lord, that's great. But you've got to show me that you can provide financially. How am I going to do this? 
Within one week of lifting that prayer up, I had a knock on the door, and somebody basically said uh, they would like to talk to me, and I said, sure. They had kids in the school, so I thought, well, something about their kids, so we went over to the school office, and he gives me an $8,000 check. Prior to that, the most I had ever gotten was a $500 check from a donation. And only one or two that I can ever even remember of. And so I'm like, wow, you have no idea what this means. This is way more than $8,000. This is an answer to prayer. With that, it was the beginning of the school year, and I said, all right, God, I'm going to do this. So I went and I told the board the very first meeting of the school year, this will be my last year. And I'm letting you know early because you need, you know, I have to get ready because I have no idea what we're going to do. We have a teacherage, which means a house that came with a job. So we have no house, nothing. Don't know what I'm going to do. So we start looking at homes that I literally can see light through. Because I'm thinking that if God would provide, I could live off of $12,000 a year. So I was counting on $1,000 a month and, you know, take out a couple of hundred dollars for food, maybe $500 for, for a house, something like that. So we are literally looking at light through buildings. We go look at some things. Uh, I don't know. We finally find one. It just doesn't, it kind of falls through. Um, I then hear that through a Bible study that my wife was at, she hears that the hospital is getting rid of some homes in town. So we go and look at one. The second one we walk in, she just absolutely loves it. It happens to be the house right there. Loves it. They were selling them for twelve to $15,000. To this day, I don't know why I said this, but I said, would you take $300? He said, sure. So we bought this house for $300. In our house, you, you'll see a little shadow box with the check for $300 hanging in our house over there. So then I began to pray, well, we have to find land to put this on. So we start praying for land. We go, we make an offer on some land. And I was doing an interview or something for KROA, the radio station. I was driving back to the school that morning, and I was praying, Lord, I just feel like I jumped ahead of you on this. If I did, then don't let this go through. We had offered $500 less on an $18,000 land property or something like that. I get to the office, the phone rings, and it was the realtor saying, they countered back at the original price. And I said, you know what? Then we don't want it. And I said, hung up, went in. My wife was putting up a bulletin board in the church. I went in there and I said, we didn't get the land. She goes, oh, what are we going to do? Because the house had to be off now in another month and a half or something like that, just a short period of time. And I said, I don't know. I just am at peace with this. Just, just let God work. It wasn't 15 minutes and that phone rang again. And it was somebody saying, I hear you're looking for some land. We've got five acres, just under five acres out in this area. 
And I said, well, how much do you want for it? He says, we just want to give it to you. So now we have our house and we have our land. So now we have to get it moved out here. Well, long story short, it cost $8,000 to move the house out here, which God had given me an $8,000 check. Bottom line is he, I, I cannot describe to you, but at every turn I had peace and even listening to you, Nathan, about you not knowing you just had peace and God has opened up every door. That is exactly how I felt. Through prayer, God just opens the floodgates. But I had peace about every bit of it. And that is how I say everything we have here is a miracle of God. By the way, then we needed, I just thought, man, Lord, if we could have $10,000. $10,000 to just help us get some things around here that we needed, the pouring the cement and what, $10,000. Again, within two weeks, my uncle calls me and he says, um, just letting you know I'm offering this to all the nephews, but uh, I'm going to give you an early inheritance if you'd like it now or you can wait, but you would have $10,000. Okay, this is just boom, boom, boom. I mean, everything. And it was all from prayer. That's why I say what we have today, whether you know it or not, is just as miraculous as what those Israelites had. God is the one that provides. And it may seem like you've worked for it. It may seem that it's been your plan. No. Okay. It's God's doing all the way. And... That's the quick story. I could give you so many other where God has been in it this whole time. And that's why I think George Mueller was on to something. He realized that it's prayer. Prayer that does it. Not your wit, not your fundraising. Uh, that's, that's why we don't fundraise. I, I'm not going to be a fundraising ministry and waste half my time going out and raising money. I'm going to just let God do it. When we need it. He knows. He knows more than I know. As far as even what I need. So anyway. Um, that was a long rabbit trail. But nonetheless. They're giving from their heart. And that's kind of what we. Should be doing. As a response. If we truly believe what God has done for us. There's a sacrifice of praise. So, Psalm 107, verse 1, should be one that is committed to memory. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Hadu leodanai kitov kile olam hasdo. These words are found throughout the scriptures, and these are the words that need to be just right there in your heart. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. Note that that, that thanks and mercy are so well connected. It goes on to say, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. 
whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. This is why Jehoshaphat put that, the singers in front. Give thanks to the Lord. They already believed and accepted the redemption, the salvation, the deliverance that he was going to give them. And they were going out, and what were they singing? This very thing right here. They were going out knowing they had already been delivered. And sure enough, the enemy was routed. So, we could take this and apply this to our lives in a lot of ways too, to our own marriages, how thankful we are to our spouse, how we reflect that, that kind of thing, but I'm not going to go there right now. It continues just a few verses later in verse 22. It says, Let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. So, just a beautiful thing, which is why when we come here and we start praising God, this is the attitude that we should have of thanksgiving and just an outpouring of our hearts for what he has done for us in our lives. Hosea 14.1 O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifice of our lips. Take words with you. What did they do when they went outside the camp? They went and they confessed their sins. They took words with them and then gave them a sacrifice of praise. The lips. When God takes away our sins, the result is praise. If you really believe that. When we're so caught up in this world though, building a kingdom here, we can kind of do it out of tradition, out of um, routine. But what he wants is our heart. Remember what he says in Jeremiah, these people, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's easy for us to go give lip service to God. But are your hearts giving him that willing sacrifice of praise? Psalm 51, verse 16 For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Beautiful. Again, that's why you you sing before we dive into this. This is the sacrifice he's looking for, a response to grace. Now, I've harped on this all year long as we've gone through Hebrews, but a response to grace, a sacrifice of praise, isn't just words. It's actions. That's why these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts. What comes out of the heart is seen by what's going on in your life. What you're watching on TV, 
what you're spending your free time on, how much time you are in the Word, how much time you are or maybe aren't in prayer. All of that is a reflection of where our heart is at. And I'll be the first to tell you, there's a lot of room for improvement in my heart. A lot of room for improvement. Jeremiah 33, verse 11 says this, The voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who will say, Praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his mercy endures forever. Remember that one? That's the one we just looked at, Psalm 107. Remember I said it's, it's peppered throughout. And of those who will bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. For I will cause the captives of the land to return as at the first, says the Lord. So, the Lord is good. His mercy endures forever. Praise Him. We see Psalm 100. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving. Into His courts with praise. Be thankful to Him and bless His name. So again, enter into His gates. When you think of his gates, that is a picture of heaven, but it is also a picture of the tabernacle, which was a model of heaven, going into the gates of the outer court, through the door that took you into the holy place. Be thankful. And that's why we begin with song. So anyway, back to Hebrews. Continuing on there in verse 16, it says, But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices... God is well pleased. Do not forget to do good. So we've gone into go outside the city. When you do, give a sacrifice, you know, confess, give a sacrifice of praise. And now he's saying, oh, and don't forget to do good. There's that works thing coming out, right? To share for with such sacrifice. So what we do is a sacrifice is God is well pleased. You know, sometimes my theology and doctrine, it's hard for me to say that we can please God. Because it's like, well, only Jesus. Through Jesus we please God. Well, they're both true. But yes, we can please God. It's just that understanding of that everything that I do is because of Jesus. Just like we were saying in communion, blessed are you, O Lord God, King of the universe, who creates fruit from the vine. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It is his power in me that allows me to please God. In the flesh I cannot, but in the spirit I can. And the Bible says in Romans, we do not live in the flesh, but we live in the spirit. Galatians says the same thing in verse 7 of chapter 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. You're going to live a life here for a kingdom here on earth? What do you think you're going to reap? A kingdom here on earth. You might have the nicest home, nicest vehicles, nicest toys on earth, but when you get to heaven, you're not going to have much. Oh, you'll be there, but you're just not going to have much. That's the 1 Corinthians 3. We're building on Christ. I'm talking to Christians only here. You're building on Christ with either wood, hay, and stubble, the things of this world, 
or gold, stone, uh, silver, precious stones, the things for an eternity. And when the day comes, all of those things go through the fire. If what is, you know, built, burns up that wood, hay, and stubble, he himself will be saved, but only as though escaping through the flames. But if it's gold, silver, and precious stones, that you've been working for the kingdom of God here, serving others, helping others, sharing the gospel, not building a kingdom here, realizing this isn't our home, then you're going to sow what you've been reaping here on earth. This is kind of what I was saying before. I would rather sow in tribulation and trials and self-denial for a few years here now and have my reward in heaven for an eternity than sow and, you know, all of these material things here and have joy and peace for 52 years, guessing. Then <laughs> have an eternity of... You know, not much. So, whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. He's recognizing that it's tough. You're going to grow weary. You're going to become exhausted. I know on a weekly basis, that's how I feel sometimes. And these verses are always an encouragement for me not to grow weary or lose heart. Because sometimes it feels like you're beating your head up against the wall. Sometimes it feels like, what am I doing this for? Um, not just spiritual things, but obviously material, fleshly things as well. And you just realize the vanity of it all. Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. If it's not for the Lord, that's what it is. And, but it says, don't lose heart, don't grow weary for, while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. In other words, going back to Hebrews... We are not on a continuing city. We are to go outside of this city to Him, to Yeshua, and hear those, the promises of His hope, the promises of eternity, the promises of joy, the promises that He gives us all throughout Scripture. That's where you go, not here on this continuing city, because this is not a continuing city. That's what Hebrews is telling us. So, verse 16 here again. Don't forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifice, God is well pleased. That when we serve the Lord, that is a sacrifice. Like I said before in Romans. Okay, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Psalm 4, verse 5 says, Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Do we ever think of righteousness as being a sacrifice? Well, maybe we need to define what righteousness is. Because there's more than one definition. You might, you could just about substitute the word Christ, Jesus, in there. Jesus is righteousness, right? But you know what else is righteousness? 
kind of the same thing, but just a different way of looking at it. God's commandments. I'm not making it up. That's exactly what Psalm 119 verse 172 says. My tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. So if God's commandments are righteousness, and it is saying there, offer the sacrifices of righteousness, this is what I mean by it's not just your lips that offer sacrifices of praise, it's your actions and what you do in your obedience to God's word. Does it matter and does it please God for you to honor the Sabbath? Yes, it does. We've talked about this before. If you choose not to honor the Sabbath, you're missing out. Doesn't mean you're not a Christian. But it is one of the Ten Commandments that the church has said, Oh, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Yes, it does matter. It is a sacrifice of righteousness. It is because He has saved me that I am going to do everything I can to protect and remember or honor the Sabbath day. Even as of the last two weeks, we've had to make some tough choices to honor the Sabbath and to protect this day. Other things that have been going on that have been very hard my heart, my emotions have wanted to say, yeah, go ahead, we'll do it. But I've had to say, no, we can't. We've got to protect this day. It was a sacrifice, but one well worth making. So, obedience does matter. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about holiness. I'm talking about sanctification. I'm talking about giving God a sacrifice of praise. One of these things that maybe you don't see the payoff here on this earth, although I think you will, but maybe you won't, you will see in an eternity, for an eternity as well. Well worth the sacrifice that we make here now. Anyway, 1 Peter 2.4 says, Coming to him as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So there are spiritual sacrifices in this new temple. We are the new temple of whom God now lives. And it's saying, you as living stones are being built up to a spiritual house. Okay, in this flesh it's not perfect, but someday it will be. And you are a holy priesthood. Just as the priest would offer up these sacrifices, he's saying that's what you are to do. Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. So, when we offer sacrifices on our own doing, our own opinions, our own merits, is that pleasing to God? No, it's not. Okay, he, he does want our heart, but we do need to, I believe, do what he tells us to do, not what we tell him that we want to do. 
Going on to verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So, in essence, he's talking about obeying your, your spiritual leaders. Okay, your pastors, those who are heads of the church. If you can't do that, then you shouldn't be under that. Well, it, it could easily slide into that. I mean, because that is, you are the spiritual head of them. The husband is the spiritual head of the wife. The, the pastor is the spiritual head of us. And so there is a hierarchy of submissiveness and order that God has given us. And I've said this for many years, I think we've lost that, that authority. In America, we are all our own authority. Nobody tells me what to do. Yeah, we want to do what's right in our eyes. We, you know, we don't obey the police. We don't obey the pastors. We don't, uh, we, women don't submit to their husbands. Um, children don't submit to their parents. I mean, we are an authority-less society because we've been trained in our culture that we all, our opinions are just as equal with everybody else's. And to me, that's scary. We talk today about, you know, uh, just some people being um, hindered in the social justice nonsense. God, even in the Old Testament or New, has talked about there are servants and there are, there are different categories of society. Always has been, and it needs to be that way. And it's no different in the spiritual realm. Do you know that angels are under you? They were created as ministers to the heirs of salvation. So there is even a hierarchy. In the, do you see the angels? Oh, social justice, that's not right, that's not right. We have every, just as much right as they do. They've even like, look what they've done with your gospel. They trample on it. We're better than they are. Well, and yeah, they, <laughs> there was that one time. And what happened? They were cast out of heaven, right? Oh, that one. <laughs> so point being is, we have to, in our culture, in our world, this is the mantra we're hearing is that we're all equal. No, we're not. I am sorry you are not. There are people who are above me, who have authority over me, and should have authority over me. And there are people who are over them. And that's the way it's supposed to be. And you know what? I'm over some other people. Like my kids. Okay? And, and they better listen to me. So there is order that's necessary. Anyway, James 3.1 says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. That means that we should take our roles seriously. If you are a parent, you are a teacher of your children. If you are a pastor, you are a teacher of the congregation. 
me sitting here teaching you, believe me, I don't take that lightly. I realize I'm not perfect. I can make mistakes. But I better have a humble enough spirit to say, oops, I was wrong. And I better be willing to take counsel. But I also better be willing to take a stand, too. We have a responsibility to watch out for your souls. That means if society is teaching you about Black Lives Matter or whatever, I have a responsibility to talk about those things because that is absolutely anti-gospel. Okay? Not because God isn't for black people. That's just not what Black Lives Matter is about. It's not about race. Okay? Likewise, if somebody is going to tell you that homosexuality is okay, it is my responsibility, because that is a danger to your soul, to say, no, it's not. And I'm finding that the more I go on in life, the more those people who are willing to learn under me are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, the numbers, because I cannot compromise. I cannot. And this is why, because this is serious. And it's becoming more and more unpopular to take a stand on righteousness. And I know that frustrates my wife. Why can't you just not be you sometimes? <laughs> I can't. I won't. Doesn't mean I can't be wrong. But as long as I'm using the Word of God, you know, I, I'm okay with people correcting me and challenging me. What I don't like are people challenging me and they don't even bring up a single scripture verse. Yeah. That's why, it, even like Daniel Joseph, when I listen to him, there have been many times I'm like, I could take any ministry and tell you, you know, I really like this ministry, I like that ministry, but I found certain messages, I said, but I don't really agree with this. There have been a number of times I've listened to his stuff and I'm like, I don't know on that one. I think I might have found something that I don't agree with. And then he's just boom, 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 scripture, scripture, scripture. And I'm like, gee whiz. I can't argue with that. So scripture is our authority. That is always the authority that is above everybody. Okay, The husband is the head of the wife, but... Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the word of God. That is what determines what truth is. Not my emotions. Because I'm telling you, there are some people that come to me sometimes seeking advice, and man, my emotions want to give them what my heart wants to say because I know it would be, it'd make them happier. But I can only give them what Scripture says. Well, it goes back to this, this protecting the Sabbath that we've made some decisions in the last couple of weeks that were very hard, and my heart wanted to just compromise. It wanted to so badly, and I just couldn't do it. Because I will be held accountable. Not that I'm going to hell. I know, my, my salvation is sure, based on what God has done for me already. I have no doubt about that. But 
there still are consequences for us who are saved. Just like Adam and Eve, they were kicked out of the garden, and I'm sure they begged to get back in. Please, God, we'll never do it again. That's right, you won't do it again because you're not going back. Okay? There are consequences for the redeemed. It's just the way it is. Hebrews 13, verse 18, pray for us. Continuing here in Hebrews. For we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. So he's asking for prayer. This is, keep in mind, we're winding down. He's finishing the book. And this is what he finds to be one of the most important things. Pray for us. Pray for me. Those are not empty words, empty theologies. This is something he knew to be important. And one of the things he's asking for is to live honorably. What do you think that means? To be obedient. Remember, if Paul is the author of this, which I kind of think he is, he's the guy who in Romans says, that which I hate, I keep on doing. So even Paul needed help in saying, help me Everything I do, my words, my actions, be honorable to God. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. We don't know for sure, but a lot of people think he was in prison at this time when he was writing this, maybe then. Doesn't necessarily mean that, but that's what a lot of people think. Um, verse 20 continues, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work, to do his will. Well, again, he's telling us that we may God, through Jesus, through the vine, do good works. Yet you talk about doing good works today. Oh, legalism. No, do good works. Make you complete in every good work to do his will. Working in you what is well-pleasing. There it is. You can please God in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Through his strength. You're not connected to that vine, you won't be able to do it. That's why any AA meeting or, you know, homosexual or whatever, trying to get out of that sin, will not do it without God. Oh, there are some who have been able to overcome, blah, you know, different here, but let me tell you, they never have really overcome. Uh, you, you have this thing in, in AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the things is you're always an alcoholic. You will always be an alcoholic. You're just a dry alcoholic. That's not scripture. You see, in Christ Jesus, you are no longer an alcoholic. That's the difference between those things. Homosexuality. The, the, the gay world would love for you to think, oh, we were born this way, you can't be changed, blah, blah, blah. No. Corinthians. Paul says, he goes through this list of sins, one of them being homosexuality, and he says, and such were some of you. Were, past tense. You can be redeemed. Okay? I don't understand. I'm not saying it wouldn't be a struggle. But I don't care if it's a gay thing or not. Guys are born with a propensity typically to lust after women. I know I was. That being the case, 
is that an excuse? I was born that way. I'm a guy. It's just eye candy. No, that's a bunch of garbage. That's a lie from the pits of hell. It is not eye candy. That is sin. If you lust after a woman, you commit adultery with her in your heart. It's sin. And therefore, it doesn't matter how hard it is, you reject it, you fight against it, because it's sin. And that's what's pleasing to God. And so were some of you. I don't care who you are as a guy. You know, this pornography garbage. If you're looking at that stuff, you're living in sin and you better get a handle of it because you're destroying your life. Um, verse 22, to close out here to the end. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation. Bear with the word of exhorting. Remember uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, the word of God, it's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's word is not just, a, oh, kumbaya, and love, joy, and peace. It's also for rebuking and correcting. But we don't want to talk about that today. Bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words, which is kind of funny, uh, know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. So Timothy was in prison. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. So Timothy being in prison, I want you to understand something here to close this out. You stand up for the word of God. You do what Hebrews is telling us to do. You're going to be in good company with Timothy and Paul or whoever this author is. But you talk about homosexuality being a sin. You talk about drunkenness. You talk about, you know, uh, critical race theory or whatever the case might be today. You are going to have some enemies. And I'm telling you, it won't be long. And there is a very good possibility that some of us could be in jail. We're seeing people being arrested in Canada, pastors being arrested. I don't know if you saw that video of that Polish pastor in Canada. Love that guy. Out now! Out! Gestapo! Out! Which, by the way, you know what I found interesting? Do you know what they were celebrating as a Christian church? Passover, the most holiest festival of the Christian year. I'm telling you, Zechariah 8.23, God is doing it. In the end times, you know, ten men from every language, nation, and tribe is going to grab on to the hem of one Jew, the hem of his robe, and say, take us with you, for we have heard God is with you. That word hem there of his robe is that seat seat. Remember, they were to attach four seat seats to the corner of the robe. It tells us in the Bible that those seat seats were there to remember the commandments. In other words, when Zechariah 8 is saying that ten men from every language are going to grab onto the seat seat of one Jew, I think what he's talking about, that one Jew, I believe, is Yeshua. And when you grab onto the hem, the seat seat of the robe, what is that? You're grabbing onto the commandments of God. Which, by the way, Passover is. I'm seeing nationwide 
worldwide, I am seeing people realizing Passover is a biblical thing, not a Jewish thing. I'm seeing people realizing we have been preaching a cheap grace false gospel in the churches today and it's time that we offer a sacrifice of righteousness and grab on to the commandments of God. So the more you do that, the more you may be in good company and the more we need to remember not to grow weary or lose heart, but to make it a sacrifice of praise. Remember when Paul and Peter, when these guys get arrested, what do they do? They offer up a sacrifice of praise. Uh, in Acts chapter 12, I think that's Peter, when he is arrested there, he's beaten, and as soon as he's done beaten, he's brought back to his cell, and he says, come on, let's sing some songs. That's a sacrifice of praise right there. So, any final thoughts? What are we going to do now? Are we gonna do now? <laughs> well, as I said, I'd like to do Esther. Um, I know that maybe some of you have seen uh, that on Patreon. I'm not sure. But uh, I think doing it personally it will be much better. Um, I think you will absolutely, if you have not heard this, you will absolutely love Esther. It is a prophetic book. An absolute prophetic book. Yeah.